and welcome to The Training Show, the show for learning professionals everywhere. I'm Elaine Giles. And I'm Mike Thomas. And we're back with another show dedicated to all things training. You were moonlighting last week, weren't you? Oh, I was. Episode 5, our special webinar episode. Why don't you give us the background to all of that? Well, I have uh, had been charged to uh, deliver a webinar for the Learning and Performance Institute. And the topic I'd chosen was podcasting in learning. Uh, When I was doing my research, I found lots of information about it, but it was so far out of date. Seemed to have been a big buzz in late 2006, 2007. And to be honest, not much about it since. Strange. Well, you know what it's like with buzzwords. The latest fad, hype to the life out of, and then never mentioned again. I see that so much in learning, don't you? I do. So uh, what did you cover? Well, the plan was that um, I would do what podcasting is. Um, I was surprised, actually, there were so many people who hadn't even listened to a podcast. So I started right at the beginning with what podcasting actually is. Then I moved on to the biggest part of the whole presentation, which is why you might want to use podcasting specifically in learning. Then I thought it would be a good idea to talk about how, but I didn't want to overemphasize all the technology behind it all. You know, you know what it's like when when you're not actually into tech, you're using the tech to do a specific job. It's not very exciting. So I thought, well, for the how, how about I actually do it and I publish a show? So something that's always dangerous, a live demo, a really live demo. So did you record it live as well? Uh, No, uh, that was the only bit that I didn't do during the webinar. The webinar itself was uh, scheduled for 60 minutes and you know what it's like. You try and keep it informal, lots of chat. So I only really prepared about 50 minutes worth of content, which allowed me to be very flexible with questions. So um, it was scheduled for a 2pm start and uh, I sat down to record this special episode at 17 minutes past one. Nothing like cutting it fine, is there? Mm, True. So uh, I recorded it. I think it was just over three minutes and uh, all it was really was just sort of saying hello to the people who were on the webinar um, and hopefully subscribed following the webinar. So hello to you all again and uh, saying what the training show was about and what we had planned in uh, the next few episodes. So I then took the audio file uh, through to my main machine and I finished the edit at 1.34. So 17 minutes, which I think is a record. Mm, the fastest recording ever. So uh, this live demo, what was it? It was actually the whole publishing process. So the very first thing I did was show people how to actually subscribe, you know, search for and subscribe to a podcast in iTunes. Uh, then I sort of went away from the consumer side of it and went over to the publishing side. So I actually uploaded the two files. I had processed the files. So I uploaded them via FTP to the server where the training show files live. Then I set the properties to public, making sure that they could actually see them. Then I created the feed entry. So I had in a text file all the show notes and uh, I showed them how you put that together to create an entry for the podcast. Then I published the feed. And then because I'd shown them how to subscribe in iTunes, it actually had all the previous shows listed in iTunes. When I then brought iTunes back, I was able to update the feed and straight away that new show came in. They absolutely loved that. So straight away, the uh, very short little show came in and then I pressed play. So, you know, it started downloading that show. I pressed play and um, we listened to the first about 10, 15 seconds of it. 
Anyway, you were there. So how did I do? I thought it was a brilliant webinar. Oh, thank you. Checks in the post. <laughs> yes, the audience seemed to enjoy it. And um, if you missed it, there is a recording available of the entire webinar. So I shall ensure that the link to that is in the show notes. And didn't you make your slides available as well? Oh, yes, I certainly did. They are on SlideShare and I shall put a link to those in the show notes as well. Although now I've got them up on SlideShare. I'm going to have to re-upload them. I'm very disappointed that SlideShare used to support PDF and now it doesn't. And if you think about the audience that I personally would have, very many of them are on Mac and they don't have PowerPoint. So I thought there was very little point in me uploading a PowerPoint. But um, it does support PDF on the desktop. The problem is no one with an iOS device can see them. So I'm going to have to redo those. But they'll be done by the time you're listening to this. And I'll put a link in the show notes there. But on to the main topic of the show, working from home. Very much a hot topic right now, especially in light of recent changes made at Yahoo by Marissa Mayer. Uh, if you're not up to speed with what's been going on at Yahoo, back in February, uh, an edit came from HR informing people that they were no longer allowed to work from home. Apparently, this originated from Ms Mayer and uh, she was reportedly dismayed at the lack of cars in the car park. Not very green, really, that, is it? No. So it prompted her to check the VPN logs to check the working hours that people, you know, when were they logging in to work? I thought that was all a bit big brotherish. Anyway, that was what had happened. There was no discussion. It was just this memo and that's what's happening now. I had a boss that used to do that. I've had many like that. It doesn't work for me. In the old days with, with manual clock cards... Um, I had one who used to count for the secretaries, luckily I wasn't one of them, how many letters they typed in a day. Now that's getting silly. Well, it is, because if you think about it, you know, doesn't it depend on the length of the letter? Mm. Yes. And the anyway. speed of the typing. Indeed. Anyway. Well, he'd probably have docked them for that as well. <laughs> but until now, uh, Marissa Mayer had refused to comment at all on uh, this, um, what actually became a, a bit of a talking point. However... This week, she was giving a speech about um, what she termed the internet giant's already vibrant culture. But I think, I think this was the right thing for her to do. She interrupted herself and she said, I need to talk about the elephant in the room. And uh, at that point, immediately, an image of a purple elephant with big white letters on the side, WFH, work from home, appeared on the screen. And... Um, she was really on message because she repeated a key phrase that had been used in the statement. Um, it's not what's right for Yahoo right now. So she's saying that sort of every that having the flexibility for Yahoo employees working from home is not right for Yahoo right now. But she did add that it had wrongly been perceived as an industry narrative, by which I'm assuming she means that she's not making a statement relating to any other company. But the problem is, if somebody as big as Yahoo, who has the sort of publicity that Yahoo have, do something like that, then others follow. Um, it's definitely a backward step for workplace flexibility. And within the week that they announced it, Best Buy then said it was going to end its flexible work policy as well. So to be honest, whatever her intention was, and she's saying it was wrongly perceived as an industry narrative, I don't think she can get away from the fact that what Yahoo do, they are seen as a leader. And I don't think she wouldn't want them to be seen as a leader. So I don't think you can completely divest yourself 
of responsibility for that. I think she should have come out and said something sooner. But anyway, she defended her decision by acknowledging that people are more productive when they're alone. And that was the stance that I had taken. I don't work well in a busy, 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 noisy environment. But she then stressed that they're more collaborative and innovative when they work together. And by together, she meant physically. I'm not too sure about that. The example she gave was that um, there is a new Yahoo weather app available for iOS. I believe it's on the way for Android too, but at the moment it's iOS. And it uses some built-in technology to link with Flickr so you get photographs of where you are. So it's a more accurate image of the local weather. And she explained that this idea had originated by two software engineers who worked in the same office as if this was something radical. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't see why they couldn't have come up with exactly the same idea if they worked on opposite sides of the planet. Exactly. I mean, I work with, a, a, I work in a small team. There's one person in Sweden, there's one person in America, there's one person who actually works at home in uh, Scotland, and the rest of us are office-based in the northwest of the UK. And I collaborate and I communicate regularly with particularly the person in America right now. We're putting to, together some uh, course outlines and we have no problems working together. I, that I don't understand. I think that I think that is um, a solution that has appeared in the last week, and and she's mentioning it in relation to this. But I really it's trying to it, justify it. Isn't it's it? trying to justify it rather than it actually being a true justification for it. Um, she then said that she's made resetting the culture at Yahoo a top priority, but her goal is not to change the culture. It's to amplify its greatness. But it all sounds like. Um, hype to me, I must admit. I do think that attempting to change a corporate culture is ambitious in, in any area because it risks alienating a workforce, both in terms of the fact that they are working in a certain way at the moment and you have just completely changed that with no warning. And especially so given the tone of the original communication, which, of course, the reason this is so public is that it found its way online. And to give you an idea of the tone of it, this is just one small paragraph. And for the rest of us who occasionally have to work from home for the cable guy, please use your best judgment in the spirit of collaboration. Whatever that may mean. Do you know, if I saw that in a memo, I, I wouldn't be happy with that. It's treating them like children. Uh, one of the best um, analysis of, of this that I saw was um, Emma Keller in The Guardian. I thought she gave a very balanced and considered piece, questioning the logic of the decision. And she used her own working practices as an example. And uh, the two points that struck me was she said that she was actually writing this article at quarter past seven in the morning. She'd been thinking about it since she took the dog out at seven o'clock and she'd already spoken to her manager about it. So he was working at seven o'clock in the morning as well. And uh, the most important point I took from, from what she had to say was th this phrase, we're all grown-ups. And I have to agree with that. So I'm not sure that Marissa Mayer's intransience does make her a good manager. Um, she is actually reported to be habitually late to meetings herself, which shows an incredible lack of respect for her colleagues and their time. 
I think to be a good manager, you really have to be in touch with the goodwill of the employees. You need them to want to work with you rather than be forced to work with you on your terms. To me, it has to cut both ways. I know there are practical considerations too. If you think about the fact that you've been working from home for for however long, if you then have to go to a physical location, you're going to have increased expenses. There's going to be practical issues in terms of travel requirements. Then you've got the flexibility of work hours. Obviously, if you use the Guardian example, that piece was then ready for publication much earlier than it would have been if the reporter in question was sticking to office hours. Um, You could well have the right person for the job at the moment, but they need to work what to you is the wrong hours. I'd rather have the right person, I think. And then I see so much of this in companies that I visit just questions like, at the moment, you have an infrastructure for X number of people and Y number of people work from home. If you're going to bring X and Y together in a physical location, do they get things like their own desk? Because I don't know about you, but I have worked in places where they have expected us to hot desk. I think hot desking is one of the worst inventions ever. Having my own space is critically important to me. And I'm wondering what's going to happen in that regard. I prefer to have my own space because I have my desk laid out in a certain way. And if I have to hot desk at another location or another part of the site, then it does feel strange. Um, you know, I, you know, I've got two monitors, two big monitors there. And if I'm if I'm working on a single monitor, I'm not as productive. I'm dragging, I'm dragging windows around all over the place, for example, um, and, and doing things slower than I would have done before. Working from home, you know, I've got um, a second monitor set up for the Mac. I can just unplug that, plug it into my work laptop. And, and again, I'm as more productive than I would have been with a, a single, um, single monitor. My own thoughts are really on point with that with you. Um, One of the questions I would have is, you know, hot desking, I can see the benefits in terms of cost, but I don't think you're addressing the loss of time of people setting themselves up to work. I mean, even down to, it's a bit like, you you remember when you were, when you were younger and used to revise for exams and you spent 90% of your time sharpening pencils and laying the desk out. And then finally you'd get around to some revision. I think hot desking, you know, the type where you have um, one of those pedestal draw things and you're supposed to wheel it across to any desk and start working. By definition, all your stuff's in the drawers. It's not on the desk. I I do really benefit from sitting down at the layout that I have and I am more productive when I'm in my own environment. I know I am. Even though these days we are expected to work much more mobile because we now have mobile devices that are incredibly capable. But anyway, the question that we're looking at is, is it possible for trainers and those involved in learning and development to effectively work from home, either on a full-time or a part-time basis? Interesting question. Well, first of all, I thought we should outline where we're up to with that. On a personal level, although I've delivered hundreds of face-to-face sessions, 
Um, and I took my first tentative steps into what is now referred to as virtual learning in 2002. I am now exclusively working from home. Uh, back in 2002, we were using a system that was really ahead of its time called Centra. I believe that's now Sabre Centra. It is. I know they you use, you that, use that at work. Yeah. I must admit, I haven't used that in many years, but it was certainly a very good grounding in what has now become virtual learning. But as I say, I'm almost exclusively delivering uh, virtually via various uh, virtual delivery platforms. And I must admit, I don't miss working in the same physical space as others, not one bit. I don't feel isolated, which is one complaint that I do hear from a lot of people. Um, I consider that I have as much interaction as I want. And if you're wondering how I manage that, I, I use Twitter and app.net, and it's not just what I had for lunch. Um, there are people that... I, I probably have various elements to what I do. There's my, there's the learning side of what I do. There's design. Um, I'm also an Adobe user group manager. Um, and or I have all those communities online. So if I have a question or they have a question, I find that that is enough interaction. Um, I'm not hyper-connected. I know you are, but I'm not hyper-connected with Skype and Oh, a whole collection of IM uh, clients open all day. I don't have those open at all. I actually use Skype like a telephone. I only open Skype if I want to make a call. So I don't leave it open all day. I don't have IM at all. I don't even have email notifications. So I think the way that I work, uh, my, my time and how I guard my time is really important to me. And I always found when I was in the same physical location, uh, not deliberately, not people deliberately interrupting you, but I just don't think it can be avoided. And I think it depends on the type of person that you are. So I know you're in a very different place to me. I am, and it, it is different for you because um, you, you work for yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and I've always worked for other people. I, I've, I've always been a work in the office person for the best part of 20 years. I've delivered face-to-face -face training, so you know, therefore I've had no choice. And even when not delivering, working from home was frowned upon by employers, I always felt. But why? I've never understood that. I think it's seen as a lack of trust uh, they see it as you're at home, you've got nobody to watch over you. Um, there's temptations there of distractions like daytime TV, uh, temptation to use work for personal tasks. If you're not visible, then you're not working. I can understand that up to a point. But, you know, you mentioned the temptation to use work time for personal tasks. Yeah. I think people do that at work anyway, if they are physically at work. If you have to make a call to somewhere that is only open during the day, I think you'll probably do that anyway. But then you say you're not visible when, when you're not at work. That seems a misnomer to me. As long as they're sat there, you don't really know what they're doing, but they're sat there. I agree. I agree. One of my uh, a colleague, when, when, uh, when I went to the police, once said to me, they pay you for your time and what you choose to do is kind of up to you. <laughs> exactly. You know, you just sat there. So they assume I would seriously have to ask the biggest question I would have to ask with that is why are companies employing people that they don't trust? Mm. If they don't trust them to do their job, why are you employing them? I don't know. I think it's it's a perception. It's not always true. It happens in a few cases and then spoils it for the rest of us. 
you know, so-and-so was working from home and wasn't answering the phone, so now nobody can work from home. That just sounds so infantile. To me, that, that really does. I take the point you're making, but it still sounds very, very infantile. If that's management's mentality, then again, location is actually irrelevant. Um, at one of the places that I worked, and um, I, at this stage I was a full-time employee, it was many years ago, there was a complete lack of trust, despite nobody working from home. We all worked in the same building. It was not that large. So, you know, if you were part of the management, you could physically keep an eye on everybody. We were encouraged to start early, by which I mean you were questioned if you didn't. Uh, and in the absence of a dedicated postroom staff, we were all expected to row in. So if the post arrived by eight o'clock, your official start time was nine. You've already done an hour's work by nine o'clock. But as I say, it was encouraged and expected rather than actually in your terms and conditions. That extra hour was an extra hour of work unpaid and often it was expected at the end of the day too. Obviously, work couldn't begin until the post had been processed. It was that kind of um, business. So the first job at nine o'clock when it had been done was to put the kettle on, which I thought was more than acceptable. The management's response astounded me. They hid the kettle. Oh, how grown up. Yes. To me, flexibility is a two-way street. They wanted you, they encouraged you to start early uh, to benefit them. They also encouraged you to stay late if it if circumstances demanded it to f complete a job. But they weren't being even in any way flexible that you'd started early. So the least they could do was give you a 10 minute break. I think that is completely ridiculous. And what I used to think was it, it, I was working as a lawyer at the time and I often used to sit there thinking, OK, I've got this brief to counsel and, it, and it's almost complete. I'm going to hold it ransom now until the kettle's released. And this is the mentality that the whole thing bred within the, the company. Can you see now why I left? I can. I, I just think it, it's infantile and it spirals out of control as well. What starts as, you know, the employees are wasting 10 minutes putting the kettle on spirals in, into complete communication breakdown. I think it's dangerous. Well, where I work now, it's more relaxed than in the, the 90s and the 2000s. And uh, working from home, as I said, wasn't really an option because I was delivering mainly face-to-face -face training, which wasn't practical. Uh, they did. Some of the companies, some of the training companies I worked for, you were allowed to work from home if you were prepping for an exam or you were working on instructional design. But it wasn't just the fact that if you were training face to face, because at four o'clock after all the courses were finished, we then had a, a setup hour, sometimes turned out in, into a setup two hours or three hours if we were unlucky. So we needed all hands to the deck, setting up the, the training rooms for the next day. So if too many people were working from home, then nobody was around to set up the rooms. It was, it was just a practical thing, I think, as well. Having said that, my current employer isn't keen for people working from home, even when we can actually effectively do the job from, from there. I've worked from home, but only in emergencies. You know, if I'm snowed in, if the dog's ill, I've got transport problems, uh, for example. 
On the other hand, my previous employer was okay with it. Now, when I say my previous employer, uh, for the past six or seven years, I've worked for uh, a training team on a customer's site and the customer decided to change suppliers. And uh, when they changed suppliers, uh, they kept us on, but we were moved from one company to another. You were passed around like a parcel. We were. <laughs> and they wanted to keep you, but not your employer, really. Yeah, terms and conditions changed. So um, we, we're now um, with the... I, well, it's not just terms and conditions. It's, it's mentality as well. It's not officially in your contract. It's, it's the mentality. And as I say, the, the, the current employer is not too keen on, on us working from home. The previous employer was, was IBM. And generally, not just the company I work for, the part of the business I worked for, but generally IBM um, do encourage working from home to reduce costs. So heating, lighting, have fewer desks, etc. They actually used to pay for your broadband if you were going to work from home on a regular basis. Although they don't do that now. They assume that everyone has a broadband as standard. And I think what you save on petrol, you pay for in your broadband charge and your electricity. I must admit, I'm always suspicious when corporate cost cutting tends to shift the expense to the employee. Consumerisation of technology shouldn't mean that you're forced to pay for your own kit. And to be honest, I think that using it for work should be a choice. I think in those circumstances, we have moved on enough that the majority of people do have a fairly decent internet connection. So with that one, maybe not. But I see it sort of pushing into other areas. And I must admit, I get concerned with that. Yeah, you know that well from experience, don't you? Yes, um, I've always personally had high-end tech. I'm always an early adopter. I actually had um, a very mobile phone in the early 90s. When I say a very mobile phone, it wasn't a brick. It was a cutting edge in the early 90s. And my uh, immediate manager wanted my phone number to con my mobile phone number to contact me in court now that doubtless would have gone down very well with the judge um but i was reluctant to do that my mentality was i can't unring a bell and if i was prepared to give him my number i lose control of when he could use that so I must admit, and I was very, very young at the time, I was literally barely just out of being a trainee. And I must admit, I said no to him. And he was quite shocked. He was stood there with, with a pen and a piece of paper ready to write the number down. He was shocked. And I said, look, when you pay the bill, you can have the number. Until then, what I will do is I will ring you. As soon as I'm out of court, I will ring you. And he was horrified. He was saying that was going to cost more. Obviously, it cost more to ring from a mobile phone in those days than to a mobile phone. And I said, no, that's what's going to happen. Either that or you pay the entire bill. And he wasn't prepared to do that. So I think it's acceptable when there is a quid pro quo. You buy the kit and they then let you work from home. And I think that's absolutely fine. But like I'm saying, with that, what was to stop him ringing me out of office hours? And I, I knew him. This was related to hiding the kettle. So I knew it wouldn't end in my favour. So I must admit, no, I, I find that only acceptable in very certain circumstances when there are rules as to how it will be used, really. I was thinking about the what were the drivers that allowed trainers to work from home? Oh, the biggest one's got to be the move to virtual training. 
I think you're right there, uh, delivering virtual training. 75%, about 75% of training that I deliver now is virtual. And from a delivery point of view, I don't think it matters where I am. I'd actually argue that you're more effective from home. You have a better infrastructure and a systems engineer on hand. A personal systems engineer, no less. I do. I mean, from a personal point of view, you're quite right. We have better internet here. Um, you know, I've got a systems engineer on hand, which of course is you. <laughs> but from a general point of view, you know, I'm lucky I'm in that position. Not everybody is. Well, true. I think that's really because that's what I do on a full-time basis. So the setup that we have is not just that we have a good broadband connection, which fortunately we do. We actually have two broadband connections. So should one be down, we have complete redundancy on that. We have a second broadband connection that I can switch to instantly. It takes about 10 seconds to, to switch from one line to the other. But as we were thinking about this for the show, I actually totted up the other ways that we have to connect connect with various devices. And obviously I'm thinking things like um, I have a mobile phone, you have a mobile phone, we have iPads, we have a MiFi. And I counted up that with uh, all the mobile devices and various other connections, we actually have, in addition to two broadband connections, we have nine other connections. Do we? Um, we do. Well, there's my phone, your phone, there's spare phones. Mm. Uh, although your iPads are Wi-Fi only, I have three iPads and all of them have 3G. And they're all with different companies. And that's why they're with different companies. So if one goes down, I just switch to a different one. I realise that that is completely excessive. Most people would not have that. I didn't actually set out to, to have that number of additional mobile connections. My main concern is to have broadband and a spare broadband connection. It's just the way that it's happened over the years that, yes, we have actually accumulated 11 separate ways to connect to the internet. I'd also say it's beyond the technical. Um, it's generally quieter from home. And also, and this is my big thing, fewer interruptions. Interruptions drive me mad because I'm concentrating usually to such a degree on something. And I'm talking now not when I'm virtually training. When I'm virtually training, I believe me, I'm in the zone. But if I'm in preparing for something, I'm writing something, I'm creating something, I really loathe interruptions. And concentrating to such a degree that if I'm interrupted, it can take me 15, 20 minutes to get back into the zone that I was in. And that's that's one of my main reasons that I don't think I'm cut out for sort of the office life. Yeah, but there's fewer interruptions. It's only true in theory. You know, you've you've been sat here when uh, I've worked from home and you've heard um, my computers pinging all day, my work computers with instant messages. And I used to have two instant message systems running. Um, when we were with IBM, we had our own instant message and we had IBM's instant message system. You know, actually, you're right. I do never cease to be amazed at the noise your PC can generate when you work from home. I actually, I don't, as I've said, I don't have even email notifications. Um, I have selective notifications. So I can add somebody, if I'm waiting for something specific, I can add somebody to my selective notifications very quickly. And that's probably what I do. But other than that, I don't like my computer making a noise full stop. 
And there's a practical reason for that, as well as a personal preference. My personal preference is not to be interrupted every two minutes with notifications, you know, messages on the screen, email coming in. That's a personal preference. But if you think of what I actually do, which is I use my main machine to deliver training virtually across the world. I don't want notifications flying about. I think it looks incredibly unprofessional. I also don't want my computer making the, the level of noise that yours does. So I ha actually set my notifications. I have a special, you know, like a ringtone. Yeah. You can do that on a computer. You can set your default notification sound. And I have reset mine. You can't turn it off completely. And I was quite... I'm quite concerned about that when I discovered that I couldn't actually turn it off completely. And what I did was I created a special notification sound and it's one second of silence. So my machine's probably making pings all day, but I just don't hear it because I've set it to be silent. It really is that important. So, yes, your PC never stops. I don't know how you cope with it. No, um, but irrespective of how good the infrastructure is here and fewer interruptions, we're still relying on uh, tech at the other end, aren't we? That's true. If I'm delivering virtual training, there's many times where I have to VPN into work um, because the courses are actually delivered on bespoke systems. One particular time during snow, hundreds of people were actually locking into the VPN and the VPN couldn't cope. So I had and other people had difficulty in logging in. So what I did is I managed to log in and record the course and actually played it back. Ingenious. <laughs> yeah, it uh, wasn't a brilliant experience for the delegates, but it still worked. The thing is, I still have this feeling, and maybe it's just me, that if the tech fails, if I'm working from home and the tech fails and the course is cancelled, then because I'm working from home, it's my fault. Do you feel the same if the tech fails at work? No, because that's beyond my control. I'm not responsible for the network and the connectivity at work. Because I know that that has happened to you from uh, at work. And to be honest, a tech failure here is far less likely because it's what I do all day, delivering virtually. So elements of the system might fall over, they, they may fail, but as I doubt, I've never had all of it fail. The worst case scenario here, and obviously I have worked through this, my worst case scenario is a power cut. And even then, I mean, that if I had a power cut, it's not going to make a difference how many connections I've got. I'm not going to be connecting my computer. But even if that worst case scenario happens, I have dialed in at the start of every session that I deliver on my mobile. I put it on mute and I leave it sat there. So if there's an emergency, I take it off mute and I, I explain the situation. So although I may not until the power comes back on, be actually able to share my screen, I can certainly carry on talking to people. I wouldn't just, you know, I wouldn't just disappear. At work, you'd even struggle to do that because the mobile signal's so bad. And again, who's paying the bill? It's your mobile. Very true. Very true. But moving on from virtual training, my role involves more than just delivering training online. We provide face-to-face -face support to customers. Therefore, we can't work from home on a permanent basis. 
And another question that comes to mind is, would an employer allow you to work from home permanently and uh, and change your role or responsibilities rather than lose you? Yeah, it could be a change in circumstances. It could be that your other half, for example, um, moves to a, a different part of the world, a different part of the country. There seems to be a lack of guidelines is what I find in my experience. It just tends to be on an ad hoc request basis. And I think it probably needs some involvement from HR to, to clarify things. I would say I, I'd go for the right person for the job, irrespective of their location. And um, I don't see any exception to that for me. I've got a sneaking suspicion, like you're saying, depending on how suspicious they are, how trusting they are, a lot of people would go for the whoever's there and not be as concerned about it being the right person for the job. Uh, since this story broke in February, I, I've been reading around the issue quite a lot. And um, there was an interesting piece. I won't say it was a good piece. It was an interesting piece uh, by somebody called Erin Mayer. No relation to Marissa Mayer. But Erin Mayer is an affiliate professor of organisational behaviour at the International Business School. And um, she's very much behind this not working from home. She thinks the decision that Marissa Mayer made was a good one. And... Um, she goes on to say that, that, you know, we're human beings and we rely on and she refers to it as mutual adjustment and it means sort of working together. And her view is that when people are geographically dispersed, they don't have the same level of visual clues in order to work with somebody. She finishes that point by, by saying that she believes that lack of physicality makes collaboration more difficult I don't think it does. You know, turn your webcam on. Easy answer. True. I think if, it, if it's purely visual in terms of visual clues, then, then that's, that's certainly a solution. She goes on to say that it's a myth that virtual teams cost less than face to face collaboration, that it takes much more time to organise and effectively monitor virtual teamwork. And it also takes a greater effort to ensure that the communication between the parties is as expected she claims that misunderstandings are more likely and that leads to higher costs. I don't agree with that either, to be honest. I, th I mean, you're working with somebody in the States. How on earth could it cost less to move one or other of you to the physicality of the other one? It couldn't. Exactly. So I don't think in those circumstances that's a valid argument at all. And when she's talking about communication, to make sure that the communication is effective and that misunderstandings are more likely, I have always tended to go the other way. If the communication is written, it makes no difference whether you're physically there or not. And if the communication is written, you have that audit trail that you can follow it back. So for me, even if I was physically... Uh, close to whoever I was attempting to communicate with. I would always confirm that in writing anyway. Maybe it's the trained as a lawyer mentality in me, but I would. So I, I don't agree with that either. I think you can be just as misunderstood in a face-to-face -face conversation as you can virtually via a webcam or any other way. She then goes on to say that teamwork is not only about communication, it's also about cooperation. And that cooperation requires trust between team members. And she actually says it's difficult for humans to trust people when they don't frequently see them face to face. Totally disagree. I totally disagree with that, I must admit. I, I, I can understand on, on a, an academic theoretical basis what she's trying to say. 
But I think we do trust people that we have never seen face to face. We may have seen a photograph of them, we may have seen a video of them, but we've certainly have no personal relationship with them at all. And I think we do inherently trust certain people. Likewise, we inherently don't trust other people. But whether you have ever been in a face-to-face -face situation with them or not, I think that's totally irrelevant. I think that's a whole different business. I'm thinking about things like when Steve Jobs delivers a keynote, you know what we're like. You, wait, you waited on his every word. And did you trust what he was saying? When he stood there with the iPad and he said this is the best browsing experience ever. Did you believe him? Yeah. So did I. Despite the fact he didn't have Flash. But that's a whole other story. So I don't think the FaceTime personally with somebody is as critical as Erin um, Mayer seems to think it is. That's not what I think. Now, you immediately said, turn your webcam on. And she does address that. She says, with the excitement of newer communication mediums, such as Skype and WebEx, many companies have built the work from home movement on the premise that we can just as easily collaborate over a virtual medium as we can face to face. But that is not the case. No matter how sophisticated the communication tool, it does not replicate the effectiveness of face-to-face -face collaboration. She's absolutely certain, isn't she? Again, I totally disagree. I would just say to that, good fences make good neighbours. Seriously, there is a limit to how close I want to be in a work situation. And I, I don't agree with that. I, I I work exclusively virtually. I have no problem. I have worked face to face with people. And I would say the relationships, the business relationships that I've forged virtually are stronger, if anything. And when she, she talks about, she gives, I take from the way she's worded that in terms of the excitement of newer communication mediums. I take from that that what she's thinking is excitement equals fad, that it's, um, it's a toy really. You're excited. And we have talked about that. I'm sure we have. That, you know, sometimes you've got a solution looking for a problem. But I really don't think that Skype, WebEx, Connect, GoToMeeting, I don't think they are a solution looking for a problem. I think the, the issue is already there. And I think they're a fantastic solution. What came to my mind with that was and when I'm, I'm addressing specifically the point here, that no matter how sophisticated the communication tool, it does not replicate the effectiveness of face-to-face -face collaboration. And it brought to mind, you know those videos that Apple have made for the iPad and the iPhone? Yeah. The one, I mean, fair enough, they are marketing videos, they are sales videos, they are adverts, but they, they just get you. If you've never seen one, I'll put some links in the show notes, they get you on an emotional level. They are not telling you what processor is in this thing and how much RAM it's got. They're not, not in the slightest. What they're doing is they're showing you a FaceTime session with a young family, new baby. Oh, and there's granny on the other side of the world. And they are playing on your emotions. It's the emotional thing of it. So when, you know, again, to just reiterate that, no matter how sophisticated the communication tool, it does not replicate the effectiveness of face-to-face -face collaboration. Sometimes I would say it can be better because if the family and granny were in the same location, I don't think 
I, I would argue that possibly it wouldn't be as one-to-one -one and it wouldn't be as special. What you've got there is dedicated time and both parties have the opportunity to do with the rest of their time what they choose to. So if the young family have decided to go to Australia for the lifestyle and granny doesn't want to, you're using the technology there in an amazing way. And although it might not be identical to a hands-on touchy-touchy-feely-feely, I think it's very, very special. And I think that Apple have really got that. They completely get that. I think she's possibly missing Maybe if you've not seen the adverts, maybe if you've not experienced it, I think that is very, very important. Another thing that Apple did was in a keynote, uh, one of the later ones, this was sadly after Steve Jobs had died, there was a, a video and this video was maybe a couple of minutes long. And when they do a keynote, for those who don't know, it's um, generally not broadcast live. But what we do get is um, odd snippets and people doing live blogs. So what you hear is they're playing a video and you're thinking, get on with it, get on with it. But when you actually see the keynote and you see the video, you don't want it to stop. And what they, they did in this one was they, they were showing you just how massive the impact of technology has been in various situations. So there's people who have built a business on one product, one tiny fraction of technology. And again, there's the emotional side to it. I'm thinking of the school in India. You remember that one? Uh, yeah, I remember that one. And no matter how much face-to-face -face time the students had with each other, they would not have any collaboration outside that, beyond that. What they were able to do with a single iPad, with a single application on it and a sheet hung on the wall was amazing. And I think it, it might be in a different way. It might be effective in a slightly different way, but I don't think you can deny that it is it has the capability to be powerful and to be incredibly effective. Now, as I've said, it's sales and marketing, but before you just dismiss that, Let's look at a practical example. I'm thinking of you and your colleague's recent departure. Oh, yes. The other week, one of my colleagues left. We went out for a leaving lunch and we used uh, FaceTime on the iPad to allow the other people to virtually join in or, or join in her leaving lunch. And if you extend that to the training room, I have now started using the webcam when I deliver the training so everybody else can see me. The feedback has been very, very positive. Now, as it happens, I am on site when I'm delivering that because I have to be on site, as I've already said. But, you know, I could be working from anywhere. So, yeah, I could be working from home, still giving the delegates a valuable, interactive, collaborative experience. I agree. And I think you're completely effective with that as well. Thank you. So in conclusion, I think we can say that the work ethos has certainly changed and employees are increasingly expecting that they are entitled to work from home at least part of the time and they certainly demand flexibility. I'd say there's benefits both for the employee and the employer. They should just stop the power struggle and work together to find the best solution. I think a compromise is quite capable of working for all. But I would also accept that what works for some just doesn't work for others. It's going to be function dependent. So as you talk about face-to-face -face delivery, that's essential. But it's also temperament dependent and temperament will play a big part. 
I'm not actually at my best in an inflexible situation. That's an understatement. True. But I do thrive on appropriate contact and collaboration. Best managers work with challenges and they don't issue broad applicable dictates that ignore half of the facts. One of the best managerial manoeuvres I've ever experienced was very early on in my first job. There was one employee and she brought out the very, very worst in everyone else. She seriously nitpicked everyone and their work. Now, I was young and naive and I asked the manager why he didn't just lose the woman. Uh, in my you know, me watching the situation, I thought it would be a happier place without her. I thought it could seriously improve morale. But he made an excellent point that if she was adversely affecting the team, it was his job to redirect her talents. And there was one job where her fastidiousness was perfect. And it was a job that nobody else had the patience for. So he redirected her energies towards that job and the whole team benefited. She took ownership of the task. She had something to do that was her very own. And everyone else was thrilled that she took it off their radar. The whole team thrived. So I think it also depends on how good the managers are. But we would love to hear your thoughts. Do you work from home? Maybe you don't want to work from home. Maybe you would like to work from home, but you're not allowed to. But whatever it is, we'd love to hear your take on it. Especially in a training situation. Absolutely. Well, that's it for this episode of The Training Show. But before we go, where can listeners find you in the next few weeks? They can find me, as always, on theexceltrainer.co.uk. And I'm also delivering a webinar for the LPI on the 22nd of May. I'll put a link in the show notes for that. And that's also about... um collaboration isn't it it is yeah i thought i'd said what it was about obviously not no it's about yammer and what about you well my next public webinar is on thursday the 2nd of may and uh, it is about the power of pdf pdf is a wonderful wonderful format but not many people are using it to its full extent so that's what i'll be looking at and then i've got a couple of uh, again public webinars on design related topics so i'll put all the dates etc for that in the show notes and you can always find out what i'm up to my speaking engagements webinars and presentations on my blog at elainegiles.co.uk so thank you for listening. If you would like to contribute to the website by writing an article about something you're passionate about, do drop us a line. Most of all, get in touch. We would love to hear what topics you'd like to see us cover and hear your thoughts on all things training. We have this week got a great piece coming up on the website written by Derek Peters, an educational expert, and he's addressing managing PDFs when you're working mobile with a wonderful application review. So do check that out. You can contact us at the training show at gmail.com there's also a contact form on the website and the website is thetrainingshow.com you can follow the training show on twitter at twitter.com slash the training show but until next time we shall see you next time see you next time